Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're looking at Lebanon, a year on from the blast that devastated Beirut, the country's capital city. The explosion was caused by tons of ammonium nitrate, which had been left to fester in the port. And that official negligence has become a symbol for decades of misgovernment. My guest is Chloe Cornish, the FT's correspondent in Lebanon, who's just written a powerful magazine piece chronicling the country's economic, political and social crisis. So can anything halt Lebanon's slide into disaster? When I started my journalistic career in the 1980s, Lebanon was engaged in a 15-year civil war and was rarely out of the international news. Israel invaded in 1982. The bombing of the U.S. Marine barracks in 1983 killed 299 American and French soldiers. I know there are no words that can express our sorrow and grief over the loss of those splendid young men and the injury to so many others. And over 100 foreign hostages were taken by a variety of militias during the 1980s. The efforts to free the hostages meant that Lebanon was big news in the West, but a peace accord ended the civil war in 1990, and the last hostages were released in 1992. Lebanon's seen plenty of drama and violence since then, including the assassination of a prime minister, Rafiq Hariri, in 2005, and further conflict with Israel in 2006. But the country's been displaced in the international headlines by other, even more dramatic stories in the region. The invasion of Iraq in 2003 the revolution in Egypt in 2011, and the outbreak of the civil war in Syria that same year. The numerous dramas and tragedies across the Middle East has meant the unfolding disintegration of Lebanon has not got the attention that it would once have attracted. So, a year on from the blast, I asked Chloe Cornish how far Beirut has recovered. You do see some recovery, like a lot of private businesses have spent that money to fix up their restaurants, their bars. And some in some of these places, nightlife has returned. There's this indomitable kind of will to keep going. But a lot of that was done on private initiatives, charitable donations helped. And the government really has not taken a big share of the responsibility there. What I would say is, though, if superficially on the surface, some of these places look like vaguely recovered, The port itself is still a total catastrophe. And these are all what I'm talking about, just what you can see deep inside people. Those scars from the disaster are going to go on probably their whole lives. And there are people with injuries who will be affected by those forever. And there are people who lost loved ones who will never get them back. And they haven't had any answers from officials about who was responsible for the deaths of their sons, daughters, wives, husbands. You know, it's 
that kind of grief and mourning can't be fully processed without really knowing why it was that your your loved one died. And those kinds of scars and wounds, people I don't think will ever recover from those, you know, without having some answers. And of course, as well as the elements of physical recovery, rebuilding that you talked about, there is a sort of background political and economic crisis. And one of the things that really jumped out in, in your piece was you quoted the World Bank as saying that Lebanon, if I'm getting this right, is now potentially one of the three most severe crises globally since the mid-19th century. What did they mean by that? And what were they pointing at? Mm. Yeah, that is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? To think that in 150 years, this could turn out to be one of the worst economic crises proportionally that the world has actually seen. But yes, this is an extremely serious and debilitating financial and economic crisis. And one of the things that the World Bank has actually emphasised in its reports on Lebanon over the last few months is how far that crisis is the fault of Lebanon's own leaders. They've termed this the deliberate depression here in Lebanon because of the failure to act by the political class to avert or mitigate this sort of multi-layered financial and economic disaster. 50% of the country or somewhere around that is estimated to have fallen into poverty now. I mean, this is an extraordinary thing to have happened. And, and yet there was still no action by the political class, despite the fact that they knew <laughs> that half of the country was now living below the poverty line. And that's what's making it such a big and intractable problem because nobody is actually taking real concrete and useful measures to solve these crises. We'll get onto the politics and the lack of political responsibility in a second, but just give me a sense, I mean, either statistically or, you know, in terms of what you see around you, of how this economic and financial crisis is working out. In practice, there's some very real, tangible signs of this crisis. I mean, if you go to the doctor and you get told that you need a prescription of some kind of antibiotic or something like that, nowadays people, they're not just looking through three or four pharmacies, they're having to try to get that medicine from abroad at massive cost because there's just simply not medicine available now. And that's to do with complications around financing imports. Um, the The national electrical grid is more or less worthless currently. I mean, we're getting a few hours of electricity uh, a day at best. Huge amount of electrical generation is being done by private generators. And they're also increasingly finding that they don't have the fuel that they need. So we're even being rationed on the amount of electricity we can use that we buy from private generators. And that's for those of us who are lucky enough to be able to afford to have a private generator. Now, you imagine what this is doing to businesses. How can you really take off as manufacturers if you don't have enough electricity? You know, one of the strange things is that this crisis has been caused partially by a banking meltdown. That's meant that people haven't been able to get their money out of the bank. So they don't have access to those savings at the true value at which they put those savings into the bank. So say they put in a thousand dollars in savings um, they would only be able to withdraw that money as Lebanese lira, which is depreciating extremely rapidly. I mean, we're talking about like 10 percent swings in a day sometimes. So if you think about the way that you would expect people to be able to look after themselves in a time of crisis, especially middle class people, um, that's really been taken away. How much of the problems of Lebanon a reflection of the region that it's in? I mean, has it been destabilized by the fact that, as you say, it borders Syria, that 
Israel is kind of in a state of undeclared war with Hezbollah, which is such a dominant force in Lebanon. How much has, have the regional problems contributed to the crisis in Lebanon itself? It's a really good and valid question, and, and it is something that many analysts will point to as not just a contributing factor, but maybe one of the kind of fundamentals underlying this whole mess is that Lebanon's in a really difficult neighbourhood um, with a lot of big players around it. After its civil war ended in 1990, it was occupied by the Syrian military until 2005. So this kind of current political system that's developed really was brought in under the aegis of Hafez al-Assad, the former president of Syria, and then to a shorter extent, his son Bashar al-Assad, who then became president. Um, there was also a long occupation of southern Lebanon by Israel that was a major, major factor in Hezbollah becoming a, a force. Hezbollah was um, created in response to that occupation in the 1980s. But I think we can't fall into a trap of simply attributing these problems to those regional factors. Because if there had been strong, honest governance in Lebanon by leaders who had Lebanon's best interests at heart rather than their own, this wouldn't necessarily have had to happen. We could have had a much better run country. Yeah. So let's get to what was the heart of your really excellent piece, which I would recommend to anyone listening, which was a kind of indictment of the leadership of the country, many of whom you interview and many of whom have been around for decades. Why has Lebanon's leadership failed so badly? So um, one thing that strikes you when you are starting to think about who are these men and what are their backgrounds, many of them were active leaders of militias during the civil war, which ran from 1975 to 1990 and was then settled by the so-called Taif Accords, which helped to demobilize the militias, apart from Hezbollah, which was deemed to be providing an essential service, actually, in holding back the uh, Israelis <laughs> in the south. So that was one of the reasons that the writers of the Taif Accords allowed Hezbollah to keep its weapons while they demobilized every single other militia, was because Hezbollah was seen to be protecting the nation. So yeah, that demobilized the militias. And it's been described by some writers as the militia leaders simply swapping their fatigues for suits and going into government. So a lot of the baggage that came out of the civil war came with these people into a new system of government. There was a lot of concern about making sure the power was in some way divided between Lebanon's sects. There are 18 sects, but the Taif Accords divided parliamentary representation between them. This wasn't supposed to be the end Game. I mean, this was supposed to be a temporary kind of solution to try to stabilize and give representation to all the sects after the war. But it's just basically remained in stasis because those guys who came in as leaders didn't want to let go of power, which is something that we see all over the world, but was particularly, I think, particularly exacerbated here by the fact that there was a lot of fear between um, members of different sects. So the leaders of these parties became these chiefs. So patronage networks were built using the state's resources, whether that was by handing out government jobs or by making sure that your friends who were contractors got like a nice road building contract or whatever. I'm, I'm being hypothetical. I don't know of a particular road building contract. but yeah. um, So that was used to strengthen their hands as well. And it made it increasingly difficult for any 
true opposition figures to make any impact on the Lebanese political scene. So what you're describing is a very, very ossified political system in which people are dug in, as you point out, they're very old, they represent interests and sects which seem to be immovable. But presumably there must have been people of ability or patriots or whatever trying to reform the system. What happened to them? Why couldn't they make any headway? That's certainly true. There's been not only politicians, but academic journalists, that kind of, you know, all these sorts of forces who have tried. And from the outside, Lebanon often looks like a quite a free place. You know, there's free media, quote unquote, and um, it seems like people have freedom of expression. But when you look at the recent history, you know, that there isn't real freedom if you think that you might be killed for the things that you're saying, right? Like there were so many assassinations of political figures, journalists, security officials during the 2000s and past 2010 that you couldn't be sure that being you know that, that if you if you were in political opposition the chances or, or even in, uh, somebody who opposed the way the system was going you could really find yourself dead i mean one of the quotes from that story that i still can't stop thinking about really is Ronnie Shatter, who is the son of a former finance minister who was assassinated in a, a big car bomb. I asked Ronnie, why is it that there aren't many heroes in the story of Lebanon? Because this is a population with extraordinarily talented and gifted people. So why is it that, you know, nobody's managed to solve this, these crises? And he said, well, do they end up dead? You know, the people who dare to stick their necks out, dare to put their heads above the parapets are at much higher risk of being killed here than they would be in France or England or somewhere like that. So I think that's really important to remember that the threat of violence has kept this political system really paralysed from evolving and reforming. And there's been so many vested interests with access to arms and money and regional allies that uh, you can see that the, the odds were just absolutely stacked against anyone who wanted to change things. And as you say, there's violence on all sides. But reading your piece, one of the things that really struck me was your emphasis on the centrality of Hezbollah as, if not the key, really, really central to the current situation. Yeah, I think that, as we mentioned before, the, the Ta'if Accords allowed Hezbollah to keep its weapons. Hezbollah had a real reason for being then. It's really hard to deny that, I think. So it maintained its hold here, but it also expanded a huge amount, not always in ways that people find evil. I think this is really important to emphasize. Like Hezbollah has a huge social function amongst the community that support it, which is um, the Shia Muslims in general. But it also was very smart and made alliances with the biggest Christian party too. So that helped Hezbollah have a political cover, if you like. So Hezbollah tactically did something very clever there. But um, the problem is that it's so powerful that nobody could really challenge it. And, and it's not transparent either. It's not um, that we can say, okay, Hezbollah did this, that and the other, because it chooses to operate behind the scenes a lot of the time. So Hezbollah, for example, controls the health ministry in, in Lebanon, um, which has been under like a, a lot of great deal of scrutiny during coronavirus. Actually, for quite a long time, a lot of people I spoke to 
a few years ago, so before I started covering Lebanon um, really seriously, they said they felt that Hezbollah was the least corrupt uh, of the parties and that actually, you know, maybe Hezbollah was running the health ministry quite well. But those sorts of impressions seem to have been really dented um, as more allegations of corruption have emerged about Hezbollah and Hezbollah uh, affiliates or officials. Um, and also, as Hezbollah has become more involved in overseas adventurism, so it is a key ally of um, Syria's Bashar al-Assad, and it sent fighters to fight in the Syrian civil war. So this sort of expansionism and the growth of its international criminal networks and the growth of its missile armory has really alarmed Israel and um, the US, Israel's most important ally. And that obviously puts Lebanon in a really difficult position vis-a-vis the rest of the world. It's hard to talk about Lebanon without recognizing that as the elephant in the room. Hezbollah has a huge influence and role here, even if it's not always fully stated. The fact that Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, invited Hezbollah official to a big powwow he held with all of Lebanon's leaders to try to get them to form a government shows you that you know, France accepts that Hezbollah is a very important part of the Lebanese political picture. And while it remains the only uh, non-state armed actor, uh, it has a fear influence, right? Like no one else who's playing this game can say, you know, I have a militia to bring to this or I have uh, the backing of Tehran or, you know, the backing of, of Syria. You mentioned there the backing of Tehran. How much is Hezbollah able to act independently of what the Iranians want? There's so many parts to this organization, right? Like it's, it's, um, it's got its social functions, um, its military functions, its political functions. I don't think all of those are dictated by Tehran. Um, and I think it has a lot of like operational independence, but it's important to remember that, you know, it, the IRGC has been alongside Hezbollah for so many years. It, it's, it's that, that's absorbed. the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Yes, so it's, it's, it's absorbed so much of those teachings. And when I've spoken to Hezbollah officials, they are always very open about their relationship with Iran. You know, they tell, they tell you completely straight, like, we take money from Iran. You know, we, we get a lot of cash support from, from that country. Um, but also they, they stress on the, the fact that they know what they're doing you know, like Hezbollah knows what it's doing. It's this is its community. This is its 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 area. Its country. Yeah, yeah. It's obviously an important relationship. So just to round up, I mean, the picture you paint now and in the article is a very very bleak one. As you sit in Lebanon, is it possible to feel that there's any hope of the situation turning around and getting better, or do you in fact fear that on the contrary, it's it's poised to get worse? A new Prime Minister-designate was appointed not too long ago after Saad Hariri gave up um, trying to form a new government. I mean, one of the key things that Lebanon is suffering here is the fact that it doesn't have an empowered government currently. Its, it's, it's, it's government is caretaker, uh, and it needs a new government to, to do all of those things, like try to negotiate a bailout, even if it manages to get a new government, which it hasn't had for a year now. That new government will have a massive, massive task the international community is, is having a difficult time finding ways to to support Lebanon because it knows that the people in power uh, are not to be trusted, or that's the overwhelming impression. Um, so this government's going to have to find a way through 
garner enough confidence that it could get an IMF bailout. Um, the International Monetary Fund has said that it's ready to help Lebanon, um, but it needs to obviously have a government to negotiate with. So then let's say they get the bailout. The terms of the bailout are going to be extremely onerous. Like they're going to have to be able to prove that they're doing reforms in order to unlock money. There's no way that Lebanon's going to get free money anymore. So that's going to require them to properly govern. I mean, wow, like that's not something that happens very much in like the history of Lebanese governance, like since the civil war. So can it manage that? Well, that's a, really to be seen. In the meantime, we still don't have a government the local currency continues to flop around wildly um, on the black market. People are just getting poorer and poorer. And the only people who are doing fine in this situation are those who have access to hard currency, fresh dollars, as that it's now called in Lebanon, because we have so many different types of money here now. But uh, yeah, money that you receive from abroad is called fresh dollars. So those who have access to fresh dollars, which are primarily people who were rich before anyway, are having a great time because prices of everything for them are very affordable. But everyone else who is still living off lira uh, or Le- the Lebanese pound um, has seen their quality of life just just plummet. And that's if they can afford to buy food and shelter and stuff. And increasingly, uh, my friends say they just want to see the whole thing raised to the ground and start over again. Um, and that, I think, reflects a deep, deep sense of hopelessness. And yeah, my fear, and I think the fear of many people who care about Lebanon is that the, the, those who can leave are all, will all leave and um, there won't be that drive um, for change. Um, I'm, I'm really hopeful that, that there are still individuals who, like um, Lara Sabra, for example, who I interviewed for the piece, just extraordinary energy, determination, courage um, to try to keep challenging what's effectively a regime that's been holding the country hostage. So, those sorts of people, hats off to them, absolutely incredible, their passion, energy, drive to see things change. And I just hope that history sort of favours them in the end. But like right now, today um, in Beirut, I'd say that was a very optimistic forecast. <laughs> okay, well, look, Chloe, thank you for at least attempting to end on a note of optimism and look after yourself. That was Chloe Cornish in Beirut, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again next week. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.